Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Well, it's down to the wire with about 95% of the votes counted in the decisive state of Pennsylvania. Joe Biden has edged ahead and he's holding a lead in Arizona as well as in Nevada, where counting may continue for the next day or more. In Georgia, the race is too close to call, and the Secretary of State says there will be a recount. Meanwhile, President Trump, on the verge of what could be a crushing defeat if trend lines hold, continues to lash out with baseless claims about the integrity of the ballot counting in states where he's fallen behind. We'll break down the latest numbers and take your questions. Join us after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. As the nation grows increasingly impatient for a winner in this election, former Vice President Joe Biden's lead in Pennsylvania has grown this morning, where a win would bring him over the top of the 270 electoral votes required to become the next president of the United States. Biden is also hanging on to leads in Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, and in this segment, We'll break down the latest election developments. Joining us is Todd Zwillick, Deputy Washington Bureau Chief for Vice News, and welcome, Todd. Hi. Good to, good to be with you. Good to have you with us. Also good to have Amanda Renteria, who is Democratic Strategist and CEO of Code for America. She was National Political Director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run, and welcome back to Forum, Amanda Renteria. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you both. And, Todd, let me begin with you. This is looking increasingly like... Uh, a story of mail-in voters, which the president was strongly challenging and battling against. And in fact, at this point, it's mail-in voters that have turned the tide. It, I think that that's true, but there's an illusion there, and that's a little bit misleading. Um, it, it appears as though mail-in voters are turning the tide because those votes are being counted later, and they take longer to count than voting in a normal election year when you vote on a touchscreen or, or some other similar device. But there is a mirage there. Let's, you know, if you look at Pennsylvania, the reason why the votes are being counted in this way is because Republicans wanted it this way, uh, straight up. Uh, Pennsylvania has a canvassing law and a vote counting law that's kind of an artifact of another era. It's not built for the COVID election, which says that you can only start counting mail-in votes at 7 a.m. on election day. You can't count them early. You can't count them as they come in in the weeks leading up to the election, right? So if you have a system where you can count the votes in the weeks leading up to the election, then it looks like Florida. 
where you get all the results kind of on election night, both the in-person votes and the mail-in votes, and it all kind of dumps in because they've been counting them for weeks. Pennsylvania doesn't have that because when Democrats went to Republicans in Pennsylvania in the legislature and said, let's modify this law because we're going to have 10 times the number of mail-in votes coming in this year than we have in any other election, Republicans said no. And they said no for a very specific reason. It's because they wanted this scenario that we're watching right now. It is true that when you watch the returns on TV and you're looking at it, Donald Trump had a big lead. And then here comes Biden from behind as the mail-in votes are counted. Everything you said is true, Michael. But the illusion there is that uh, is that Trump had a lead that is being eroded. They're all just votes. Um, President Trump has made his intentions clear for many, many weeks, if not months, which is to challenge the results of this election, to throw doubt, to undermine uh, the democratic process, and really try to destroy faith in the election. And he's hoping to use this interim period, not only to undermine faith in the election publicly, but to file lawsuits to go along with that, to instill uncertainty, um, to try to overturn the results if he can, but if he can't, to at least have the uh, ego defense to say he never lost and the political capital to say he never lost if indeed he leaves office. So that's sort of the, I sort of give you this dissertation because that's sort of the mirage that's in front of the idea that Biden was behind and now he's catching up. It's not really the case. The votes are the votes and the strange kind of dynamic that we're in right now in many states, particularly in Pennsylvania, uh, is of Republicans choosing, and it's in service of Donald Trump's attempt to subvert faith in the election. It doesn't appear right now that that's working. Well, I thank you for that explanation, particularly in light of the fact when I said mail-in votes seem to be the story. Uh, the emphasis was on seem. We have a counter-narrative, and uh, that counter-narrative seems to be taking hold to some degree. But the mirage explanation, your dissertation, as you described it, was quite, uh, I think, edifying and illuminating. And let me go to Amanda Renteria, because uh, let's talk about President Trump's response with you, Amanda. I mean, it's been described as an assault on democracy by the president from the White House. Predictably, he is trying to delegitimize this election, calling it rigged and so forth, and saying that well, big media and big money, and uh, these are his access. This, uh, this is his access of legal. Uh, uh, big tech are conspiring. Even the polls have conspired against them. Uh, and he's saying that there's evidence to this effect. Uh, where is the evidence here? Where is the proof? Right. I mean, that's the question that everyone seems to be asking. And even uh, Republicans now are beginning to stand up and say, show us the evidence if there's something there. But listen, this really struck a chord with folks all across the country, Democrats and Republicans alike. And I think you are going to hear more from Republicans about this because it's at the very core of our democracy that every vote needs to be counted. And this one is easy to see. You could see not all of the votes were counted. And for him, to start to split out um, what to try and say some are legal votes and some are illegal votes dependent on when they are counted is exactly opposite of anyone that is ever running for office. You want every single vote to be counted. And so this is really striking a chord, especially because Republicans look like they will continue to hold the Senate and gain seats in the House. So you are undermining a system that has basically had bipartisan wins in this particular cycle. And it's at the core of fundamentally who we are. And the question is going to be whether or not Republicans now, this is the line where they recognize it's 
it's time to stand up and not just behind the scenes, which we hear quite a bit about, but it's time to publicly denounce this kind of behavior or else we're going to be in chaos for the next 60 days and into the inauguration. Should this continue on its current trend? Well, I think you're right that Republicans did certainly do well, much better than they thought. And the blue wave was supposed to take place. It was not exactly a blue wave, but uh, we still have the Senate possibility. There are a couple of runoffs in Georgia that may turn the tide there as well, though uh, we'll have to wait and see. But can Democrats work with, uh, especially with the executive being a Democrat now, Vice President Biden, likely the president-elect, uh, he seems to certainly be lurching toward that. Uh, can Democrats work uh, effectively with the Senate controlled again by Mitch McConnell? I think you're going to see um, Biden take a, a approach that and he said this from the very beginning that he's a president for all Americans setting the stage for that I think the other um, hopeful piece here and uniquely for Biden is that this campaign also had Republican supporters um, it had Senator Flake who came out and did an ad the McCains were involved in this election cycle for Biden I think the other piece is that Biden has set this up as I am here as a trend as a transition kind of president that allows him a lot of leeway to figure out how to get us out of this moment we are in in a in a fashion that can unify the Senate that can figure out how to work together uh, with some of those very big obstacles but you have to remember when the idea that we'll have another presidential election in four years. I'm, I am really curious about the different Republican dynamics that this is going to create, where some people are going to say the path to potentially um, running for office or running for president is going to be showing that I can be an effective leader with the White House. Um, and Biden, I think, offers a very unique partnership right now, not to mention we are going to enter uh, the inauguration, should Biden win, in a place where we have a lot of problems coming to a head and need to fix those, very much like when Obama first started and we hit the Great Recession. Amanda Renteria, again, is the Democratic Michael, strategist for the former national and former national political director for Hillary Clinton. I heard your voice, Todd. Go ahead, please. I, I just want, I, I didn't mean to break in except to give maybe a slightly darker um, view of what it might be like governing for Biden. And, and I don't know the answer to your question to predict what it will be like, but I can look at a couple of developments in the last few hours and also look at the past um, of relationships between a Republican party and opposition in Congress when a Democrat occupies the White House. Um, I'll, I'll take you back to 2009 uh, after the housing crash, when the economy was deep, deep, deep in the tank in this country. And one of the first major acts of new President Barack Obama was to negotiate a stimulus. Uh, I covered that debate in the Senate. I was there. And the way it broke down is that Republicans absolutely refused, no knowing from all experts the amount of stimulus it would take to restart the economy. Uh, Republicans absolutely refused to pass a stimulus uh, that they knew was required. And they largely did it because they didn't want the new president, the new Democratic president, to be able to claim the reins of, a, of, of an economy roaring back. What happened? Well, we had a big economic recovery, but it was very, very slow. And Republicans ran on that two years later, and they ran on it four years later, too, the slowest recovery. They helped engineer that slow recovery. And it was around the exact same time that Mitch McConnell announced to his supporters that his mission was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. I then throw you forward to the experience of Merrick Garland when uh, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away. President Obama appointed Merrick Garland 
uh, nominated Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court 250 days before the election. We all know the story. Mitch McConnell refused to even entertain the notion, didn't give him a hearing. And then we all experienced Andy Coney Barrett, which is the difference uh, in that behavior when there's a Republican president. Well, Todd, I'm glad behavior, you brought up this uh, darker view, but I wonder if it also pertains yeah. to what's going on vis-a-vis -vis the presidential race, uh, because President Trump has made it clear that he is not going to concede and that he's going to fight this on every front. And one wonders if, especially when you hear someone like Lindsey Graham talking about using electors, if the Republicans and the GOP are going to continue this kind of recalcitrance or obstinacy that you're talking about and, 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 yeah, and stand behind the president when he doesn't concede. And it, and it took me too long to get to the point, and I'm glad that you did. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, went on television last night to say Donald Trump won this election. That's a lie, and it's false. It's, um, I don't mind saying, a repudiation of his oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Why say such a, such a strong thing? It, it telegraphs that Republicans are preparing, uh, whether Donald Trump ever concedes office or not. Let's assume that Joe Biden wins this election for the sake of this conversation. It, it signals that Republicans are preparing for the, um, the the animated feature of their opposition for the next two to four years to be a, stole, a stolen election against uh, Donald Trump. And that once again, reanimates the spirit of birtherism. The Democratic right, I got to break in here because I is, want to give out the number and I want to bring our, our listeners aboard. In fact, uh, if you have something you'd like to add to this conversation or simply join this conversation, if you have questions or comments, please feel free to dial in now. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. Join us toll-free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have, the forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Todd Zwillick, Deputy Washington Bureau Chief for Vice News, and Amanda Renteria, Democratic strategist and former national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run. Let's hear from you, our listeners. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, and we are talking about the presidential election as uh, Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden seems to be lurching toward being the president-elect and getting the required 270 electoral votes to become the next president of the United States. Amanda Renteria is with us, and so is Todd Zwillick, and we're going to bring your calls in and your emails and so forth. And I, again, remind you, you can join us toll-free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Amanda, uh, let me uh, ask a question in a broad way about how you think um, race has figured in this election. And I'm asking that question out of a recognition that Stacey Abrams particularly played a very singular role if Georgia indeed winds up in Biden's column. 
And I noticed Candace Francis, one of our former forum producers, uh, uh, who is African-American, posted on Facebook that there is a great debt to people of color if indeed uh, Biden wins the election. And uh, many would certainly agree with that thesis. At the same time, we're seeing probably the largest number of non-white votes for the Republicans, that is for the, those who are members of the Republican Party, than we've seen in any previous election. Of course, a lot of that has to do with a large turnout. But how do you assess things? And particularly in light of the fact I'm asking about race because it played such a significant role in terms of what the what we were talking about a moment ago before we went to the break what the republicans have tried to turn against the democrats saying that big cities and sometimes that's coded when they talk about milwaukee philadelphia detroit and so forth for african-american populations are turning the tide and are making the election somehow unfair your thoughts yeah i want to i want to say this uh at the outset of this conversation because um, what I sense and what I feel actually as a woman, a woman of color, is that uh, this election, even if uh, Biden wins, has been difficult to accept that 70 million Americans or about half the country, at least the Electoral College uh, count, um, really are still backing somebody that has had racist comments, misogyny you know, really attacked communities um, that, and so this is very personal and actually very difficult to both hold that we might win the presidency and yet we have a country um, that doesn't feel very much like it respects uh, people of color, um, women, et cetera. And so this is, this is um, there's this piece here that's been very difficult, I think, for a lot of folks looking at this because people were hoping for a repudiation of that kind of thing. Um, now, what I will say is what you are seeing in the numbers, and I remember in the first couple of hours um, when the when the election results were coming out, Atlanta had it been counted, Detroit had it been counted, Philly, Phoenix, um, Las Vegas. You know, we know who lives in those communities. We know that people of color were fired up in this election. And so, you know, we are now looking right down the realities of race in this country in terms of what we've seen in the outcome of this election. And one of the things that we all have to come to grips with as we see this is we do have to face that reality and figure out how we're going to move forward as a country. And it is going to be incumbent on the leaders of the Republic of the Democratic Democratic Party and the Republican Party to come together and say, what do we do now? And how do we see communities um, who we haven't seen, who are now coming to the surface, who are becoming leaders um, all throughout the country and make sure they are at the table when Biden puts commissions together, when Biden thinks about his cabinet. Um, doing that, building that big tent is going to be incredibly important for healing this country in a way that we have yet to see, at least in my lifetime, where you're truly giving honor, dignity, and respect to communities of color who are now and who you can see now in the numbers have really likely tipped this scale towards Biden being president right now. And we go to our callers. We begin, Dan, with you. Good morning. Uh, hi. Um, I can't hear you. Um, no, I, now I can. So I think the elephant in the middle of the room here is conservative media, uh, which used to be just Fox News, but uh, call-in radio, Facebook. I think the Republicans are going to have an extremely difficult time, the politicians themselves, trying to do any healing when you have just a huge echo chamber trying to get just more of the same. 
and Republican uh, uh, politicians are going to have a really difficult time getting reelected or not getting shot down. We all like to think that this was all Trump. He's a symptom, not a cause. And, you know, I, I think that needs to be considered. I thank you for that call, Dan. And uh, let's get a response from you, Todd Zwillick. And let me also add to Dan's remarks, uh, Kenny, who uh, writes in on an email, is it going to be so difficult for Biden to govern that it will set the stage for another Republican presidency in 2024? It's maybe putting the cart ahead of the horse a bit, but I think it sort of jives with what the caller Dan had to say. Your thoughts? I I think Dan Dan is spot on with the concern um, whether it will prevent Republicans from healing or whether they really want to is something we'll we'll see at the same time. I, I, not only conservative media that animates the Republican base, um, in some cases do, does hold Republicans of otherwise goodwill completely captive, um, and in other cases helps animate some of the, the, the dark impulses of other people. I, I mean, I point you to Kevin McCarthy again, who got on television last night to, to lie to America and say Donald Trump uh, won the election. Excuse um, me, Todd, I have, to, I have to yeah. intervene here for a second. And just when we, as long as you're talking about dark impulses and rhetoric and the media, I mean, one of uh, the president's closest advisors was Steve Bannon. And he came out yesterday saying that uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, Christopher Ray's head should be put on a pike on spikes uh, outside right. the White House. I mean, this is just right. the sort of base thing that we never even imagined possible. But here it is. Yeah, it's it, uh, un- unbelievable and shocking. Uh, but in the denominator of a lot of right-wing media that so many people are exposed to sort of run of the mill and and to dan's point i want to raise another thing that's been bothering me uh, over the last few days um and that's the 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 undercurrent of misinformation that's in our politic right now disinformation conspiracy theories and lies um, increasingly we're seeing voters view of politics uh, what drives them to vote completely divorced from policy, their pocketbooks, COVID, things like that. Um, th- there, There is a broad, you know, everybody's heard of QAnon, and I know you're familiar with it. And I'm not really talking about people who drive in caravans with hues on their trucks here. I'm talking about a diffuse, locale version, sort of the moral panic over child trafficking, over conspiracies that, that lead you know, companies like Wayfair, a, a furniture distributor, to be involved in child trafficking, like uh, utter lies. Uh, millions and millions and millions of people who are only casually associated with politics in any way see this stuff daily on their Facebooks and their Instagrams. It just kind of informs their generalized idea of what power is doing in America. It has nothing to do with the fact that 1,100 Americans died yesterday of COVID which you think would be something that really animates a lot of voters. So I I think every time we wonder about how Republicans will behave in the next four years or what conservative media will do, really, you're you're right, Dan, it's not about Fox News, in my view. It's about this constant undercurrent um, of just uh, utter fantasy, malign fantasy that's coursing through the politic right now. And I have no idea how Joe Biden manages to govern in a persistent way when the opposition is animated by stuff like that. Yeah, and I'm afraid I'm thinking, and I know perhaps you are, Amanda, of uh, Pizzagate when Hillary Clinton was running, but I want to get another caller on here. David joins us from Oakland next. David, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Following up on just that comment that was just made, I mean, at what point are we going to expect journalists and news outlets outside of the conservative media to stop calling 
the balls and strikes of this election and going along with the narrative of of recount and 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 lawsuits and start, you know, conceding that this is the election is fair. It's over and, and turn to this fast developing narrative of the president and all of his men and women and followers completely undermining our democracy. And this is like this is going to make birtherism look like child's play, the narrative that is snowballing on all of us right now. And the longer we we go along with the, the balls and strikes and, and, and the recount and the lawsuits and we just play, you know, play like we don't know who's won this election, the, the more air it can feed that fire and and the more destructive it's going to become. So outside of the conservative media, when are we going to expect journalists to just start turning to that narrative and really giving it its, the full light it deserves. David, I thank you for that call. I'm going to let it stand as an editorial comment because I want to go back to Amanda Renteria and ask her about uh, this is all sort of configuring a notion of pessimism. And let me read a comment to you from a listener named Matt, Amanda, and get your response. Uh, Matt writes, I think the crescendo of Trump's presidency is going to be him calling for people to take to the streets and for the citizens' arrest of politicians etc. I recently stocked up on guns and ammo because it seems like it's heading in that direction. It's a very scary time. I'm nervous and exhausted. There's certainly people who feel that way, that it's become so polarized. We had John Meacham on yesterday and he offered a note of hope. I wouldn't mind hearing a note of hope from you, Amanda, but uh, what do you, what do you, how do you look at this uh, in terms of the kind of pessimism we're hearing about the media as well as about uh, the results to the Trump loss, if that indeed is indeed what we're going to see? Yeah, I, I am. I am more hopeful. And, and here's why. Um, again, I know that we have some short term chaos at the moment, but I, I am hopeful in this regard. I think no one can rile people up like Trump can. And um, and I think he is losing power. So even if he's in court cases, that is in court, that's very different than having 100,000 people uh, voting for him and turning the election where he actually won. So to be able to see Georgia um, be on the cusp, to see Pennsylvania turn in the numbers that we're seeing, Arizona, Nevada, that kind, those kinds of um, power changing dynamics, I think have an effect. And the reason why I believe that is because when Trump was sick, no one was able, when he was in the hospital, nobody actually filled that void. And that gives me hope that he is, on the one hand, he uniquely can do something. But if we start to ignore him and him not having power begins to change the way I believe Republicans will work with him, but also you're beginning to see Romney come out. I also am still waiting. And this is also uh, something that makes me hopeful. I am waiting for the former presidents to come out together and start to band together and make a point about our democracy, about our country coming together. And I think um, we've been seeing some rumblings about people working behind the scenes in a bipartisan way. So I think there is more here in leadership of this country to be able to come out together and say something and do something. Um, I'll also say one other thing, which is the pandemic is real. There is a um, clear enemy here um, that we can fight together. So long as we can start to focus on what is really happening. And again, Trump losing power opens up a different kind of discussion. We still are going to have to contend with Fox News. We're still going to have to contend somewhat with Trump. But it's different when all of a sudden you begin to see power shifts happening. We're not there yet, but we might be 72 hours from starting to turn the corner.
Also, one has to add the fact that Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden had worked together on many uh, things in the Senate and worked together amicably, I presume. By the way, uh, we're hearing from uh, Manu Raju uh, by tweet, the senior congressional correspondent for CNN, that Nevada is slipping away from Trump as Biden has just doubled his lead there. And uh, we'll try to, of course, keep you informed as much as we can on ongoing numbers and counts. Let's bring Tim in next, though. Tim, join us. You're on the air. Hey, I think any attempted at reconciliation with the Republicans would be disingenuous on their part. They just never seem to come around. But I called to say, I'm going to have the supermajority when he first came, and not much happened then. So I don't see what, you know, to hold out hope that anything, if, if and when Biden gets up. Tim, I'm sorry, your your phone is breaking up, and uh, I think we got the gist of why you called. But let me uh, also introduce Lonnie Chen into this conversation, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and former policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. And we just heard the name Mitt Romney. And Lonnie Chen, good to have you back on Forum. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I guess the place to begin with you is can uh, the Republican Party reconstitute itself in some way uh, looking toward 2024, if indeed... Joe Biden becomes a president-elect, or is it still going to be the party of Donald J. Trump, which it has been, frankly? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how the party dissects the different elements of Trumpism. I mean, I think for sure it's difficult to see this election as anything other than a repudiation of Donald Trump personally, the the, the character of Donald Trump and who Donald Trump is. That having been said, I think there's also evidence to suggest that elements of Trump's policy agenda, you know, the more populist edges, uh, those, for example, that, uh, that that look at trade very differently from traditional Republican points of view, uh, things of that nature, I imagine, may actually stick around and you may actually find more Republicans embracing, uh, you know, those points of view. But but in terms of Trump himself, you know, he's going to keep tweeting and he has a media audience and obviously has a group of supporters. Uh, but I imagine and hope that his influence over the party will fade as his uh, as his electoral uh, fate becomes clear. Well, the Republicans have been, frankly, very strongly behind this president. And I'm wondering uh, now if he refuses to leave and he will not concede and all of that, uh, what we're up against in terms of Republicans who have been, for the most part, frankly, lockstep with him and behind him entirely. Well, I think you're going to find that some uh, Republicans find political courage uh, if and when that happens. If if if, <laughs> if Trump refuses to leave, I mean, I, I, I had a, saw someone tweet this morning that I'm sure the United States Secret Service would be happy to show President Trump the door uh, if, in fact, he, he is to lose this election and refuses to leave. Look, I think a lot of Republicans are, are politically pragmatic in the sense that they were with Trump because they needed to be with Trump. And in fact, I'll go he, back. You know, uh, I'm sorry. Finish what you're saying, Lonnie. Excuse me. Well, I mean, there, there's not much more to the thought. It's just that if if you know if Trump is, is has lost this election, which it appears he has, and he's you know not going to be on the political stage at least directly anymore, uh, you know they'll 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 be a lot less supportive of him. I think when the time comes. Well, there is some speculation he may want to start something like a Fox network of his own. But Amanda Renteria, I want to go back to you on this because. The fact of the matter is Democrats said back in July that they would remove trespassers from the White House if necessary. I believe that was the language, and presumably that would still be at least in the uh, in the quiver of the Democrats. 
Democrats have been eyes wide open about this entire process, everything from building a legal infrastructure four years ago. Um, they saw what happened in 2018. They had a chance to really build that infrastructure and they've been building it ever since. Um, there are there are a ton of folks who are ready for if that should happen. That's a very different thing than four years ago, is that people were waiting for it, knew it was happening. It's why, as we were going into this election, people said, we're going to count every single vote. And they had the legal teams on the ground to be able to combat it. You know, I think there's another thing here um, that will likely play into this, which is for Trump, should he be moving towards not being president, he is going to start worrying about these legal challenges around the country. Um, and any pardon isn't going to help him from New York, who might be bringing these cases against him. There's quite a few things out there that he has not been held to account because he has been president. And so I do wonder how that begins to play when all of a sudden he starts to move closer out the door and what Republicans do then, because there isn't a lot of federal power if New York wants to do something, for instance. I think, frankly, and he so does not want to get presidency because quickly. of the fear of prosecution and uh, the protection that immunity would afford him. Uh, we're coming up on a breaker, but quick question for you, Lonnie Chen. Uh, uh, listener writes, given the shocking response of the likes of McCarthy and Bannon, is there any chance Senator Romney declares himself an independent and caucuses with the Democrats? Just a quick yes or no. I don't see that. I, I, don't, I, I don't see that happening. Yeah, uh, unlikely to say the least. Uh, we'll go to more of your emails and we'll certainly welcome you to the program if you'd like to join us by phone again. The number to call is 866-733-6786, and we'll be checking in with Congresswoman Jackie Speer and get her response. Stay tuned for more here on Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the presidential election, and Todd Zwillick is with us from Vice News and Amanda Renteria, Democratic strategist, and Lonnie Chin joined us at the half-hour mark, research fellow at Hoover and former policy director of Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. I should mention that Amanda Renteria was, of course, a Democratic, a former national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run. And let's bring on Congresswoman Jackie Speer. And Jackie Speer, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Michael. Great to be with you. Glad to have you with us. And I'd like to get your response to something we were just talking about, and that is what kind of battle the Democrats are ready to wage and what kind of teeth behind that uh, if indeed the president refuses to leave the White House or concede. I am confident that the president will be forced to um, comply with uh, the will of the people, which means if he loses this election, which it appears he will do, uh, he will be removed. If the Secret Service is required to go in and remove him, they will remove him. And at this point, what can you say about the working relationship between the House, which is um, still 
blue and Democrat majority, but nevertheless, uh, you're going to have perhaps, uh, uh, again, a Senate that's Republican. It remains to be seen because it's all up to Georgia at this point. But the House, a working relationship uh, with the Senate, particularly if it remains GOP. Well, if it remains GOP, um, it will you know, still have members um, within that body that have a, um, you know, a, a sense of independence uh, from Mitch McConnell, whether it's Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney, uh, depending on the issue, um, could you know, swing to um, you know, whatever the president wants. And, and we need to remember, too, that uh, Joe Biden spent um, a generation over 30 years, I believe, in the Senate, knows these persons very well, actually had a fairly good relationship, I guess, with Mitch McConnell. I didn't know that until yesterday. But in any case, um, he will be probably the most effective negotiator with the Senate um, because he knows it like the back of his hand. I'd also like you, Congresswoman, to say something about the democratic process that has really come under assault recently with this election, unfortunately. Uh, many speak of our sacred institutions, uh, voting and counting votes and so forth, being assailed by this president. I'm wondering, particularly since I've been thinking about my mother, who was a volunteer uh, poll worker, as so many have been throughout this country, uh, and believed in the process, as I do, and hoped that it would re render the best results. There's been a questioning of the transparency and of the democratic processes in general, and perhaps that faith has to be bolstered in some way among the citizenry of the United States. Uh, where's hope in that from you? Because you're always speaking hopefully. Well, let me say first off, I, I visited many polling places on Tuesday uh, throughout the San Francisco and San Mateo County area. Um, there were so many young people engaged. It was so thrilling to see and, you know, most of these polling places were overrun by volunteers. So there is a commitment to our process, which we should um, be reassured by. Um, I think that what we do need to do, though, is recognize that um, just like the poll tax was decades ago, um, these requirements imposed for uh, voting in person need to change. We're in the 21st century. Voting by mail makes a lot of sense. There's also a paper trail. You don't have to walk, worry about Russian, you know, getting into the um, machines. And so I think we, we need to take another look uh, at the whole process. I'm concerned that the um, Forgive me, Congresswoman, yes. there's also a pandemic, which is a reason why a lot of people voted, most people probably voted by mail this time. Right. But I think there, I mean, once you've done it, it becomes easy and you recognize, you know, that there's some great benefit in doing that. But the United States Postal Service this year has been atrocious. Um, and the judge that has just called for the sweep that didn't take place as it should have been in a timely fashion on Tuesday, they, they've now identified some 150,000 ballots that got caught in the system and did not get delivered. That cannot happen again. Um, and I, I think we've got to have a, a clear understanding. If you have it postmarked on Election Day, it should be counted for a period of days after that. Um, some states have that ability to do it. Nevada, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, others do not. So, um, for instance, in Arizona and Georgia, even though they were postmarked, 
they will not be considered. And there's, I think, 1,600 votes there. So um, I, I think we need we do have to do a, a total rework of our voting process. Congresswoman Spear, thank you for joining us. Always good to have you. Thank you, Michael. And let me now go to another caller. But before I do, I'm going to go to a question here from a listener who wants to know what our guests think about the military in terms of ending Trump's apparent refusal to leave office and his ongoing attempt to delegitimize the process. Uh, go to you on this, Lonnie Chen. Well, look, I, I don't I, I just think getting to some of these scenarios and you know, forcing forcing him to leave in, in, you know, talking about these things is way premature. And rather than entertaining this kind of thing, I would just say that uh, I, I think over the next couple of days and weeks, as this becomes clear, uh, there will be a concerted effort to ensure that he understands the stakes in respecting the will of the people. And rather than entertaining possibilities about the National Guard or the military and the chain of command getting involved, uh, I, I'd, I'd rather leave it at that because I think some of this talk uh, simply makes things worse and puts sort of fire where it doesn't need to be, quite frankly. I want to add to that, Todd Zwillick, or take away from it? Um, not really, except that um, to questions that have kind of bubbled up, um, the Joint Chiefs have already made clear, the military has already made clear they have absolutely no role in the election whatsoever. It shouldn't even come to that. I I, I do agree that those types of questions are intriguing, uh, uh, very, very premature at this point. And let me bring another caller on. That's Chris, who joins us. Chris, welcome. You're on the air. Hey. Hey, thanks, Michael. So my thing is the Trump show is over now. And the fact that he is still the show is distracting us from the fact that Brian Kemp is the governor of Georgia, and there's going to be two runoffs there. And if those go Democrat, then life will be good. And if they don't go Democrat, Mitch McConnell will just throw the monkey wrench back into the system and nothing will get done. So I think we need to be focused fully on Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams, and the voters of Georgia. For All right, Chris, I thank you for that. Amanda Renteria, what about that as a strategy and a notion now that really laser focus on Georgia, as a caller puts it? I think that will happen, um, certainly for a number of different reasons, not only the Senate, but uh, I think there, is a, there are a lot of Democrats who are really seeing an opportunity to galvanize a new electorate, and Georgia really can be the culmination of that. Um, but I also think we're in this space until at least January. There's an omnibus out there. There's a CR out there. What is the Senate going to do in this in the meantime to make sure that people are, are okay while we're hitting record deaths um, and record COVID cases? And so in real time, we've got to figure out, and these leaders, both perhaps a president-elect and a Republican uh, Senate and a House that's changing as well, um, there's going to be one quick test that we're all going to have, which is what are they going to be doing between now and the end of the year to make sure people are okay? And perhaps there's a little light there that we will see folks work together for something, and that'll be the first step towards better. Let me read a tweet and then go to another question that uh, pertains to what we're talking about now. This is a tweet from Michael who writes, if Biden has such sway with Mitch McConnell, 
Why did he not intercede on President Obama's behalf, especially during the many months when Mitch refused to take up the nomination of Merrick Garland? I'll let that hang for a moment. I'm sure Todd may have something to say about that. But let me go to this question for you, Amanda. Uh, Todd writes, uh, will Biden be willing or able to exploit the new normal of presidential power to somehow bypass or nullify a McConnell Senate? I think he has unique relationships. I also imagine that he will have a very um, talented, skillful cabinet as well. I mean, from everything that we've seen about the way Biden leads is he does lead with the team. He's the vice president. He was a chairman that really worked with other members of the Senate. So I imagine we will see a very team oriented process here where he will lean on his cabinet and on past relationships. But it is true. He's going to be working with folks like Romney and Murkowski and, and people who have showed some independence. And there is a power in those numbers. Um, and he'll have a little bit more of them. Again, Trump's voice should be, yes, it'll still be there, but I just don't believe it's going to be as loud. Todd Zwillick, want to weigh in here? I think there's a lot of wisdom in the idea that Biden may be able to exploit um, Senate moderates, and there are very, very few of them left because of polarization, but Senate moderates who see political capital in moderation. So those people may be Susan Collins, may be Lisa Murkowski, um, Mitt Romney in only very limited, uh, only very limited circumstances, I would think. I think that that's all possible. But I do think it's very smart to bring up the history of Joe Biden dealing with the Senate, uh, with which he's so friendly. Uh, Joe Biden was in many ways in charge of negotiating with the Republican Senate when he was vice president. Barack Obama was famously kind of aloof from this whole process, didn't like it. They didn't really like him all that much. He wasn't really interested in the very daily kind of back and forth negotiations. Uh, Joe Biden was the senator of uh, five or six terms, and that was his job. And it didn't do a whole lot of good. It didn't do a whole lot of good um, after the Affordable Care Act was passed and Republicans set themselves for six years of uh, almost unilateral blockade against Obama's presidency. Uh, so I just point to that experience. Those relationships are important and political dynamics do change. I do think there's a lot of wisdom in the idea that especially with a closer Senate that Biden may be able to exploit some of those relationships. But if those relationships don't get to 60 votes on legislation, if they get you to 54 or 55, uh, in, that still means that Mitch McConnell has enormous power to blockade Joe Biden's presidency and blockade his his uh, policy efforts. That's that is, just the reality. And the history of Mitch McConnell is when he has that power, he uses it. And I was just going to say, though, uh, speaking of blocking and the like, um, there is presently in this presidential race uh, a number of states that can put Joe Biden over the top. One of them is Arizona, and Joe Biden was known for his close friendship with John McCain, and we know that Cindy McCain came out in favor of the Biden presidency, and all of that may have made a big difference in Arizona. Uh, but Joe Biden was known for working across the aisle in some ways that, you know, he's been certainly uh, uh, indicted for uh, in terms of rhetoric, uh, such as the Anita Hill uh, case and the Clarence Thomas confirmation. I'm looking at... Um, uh, some emails here, and so, and I want to go to them. Uh, some of them about President Trump's character. Uh, listener writes, as a narcissist, Trump thrives on provoking a response. Our best tool for neutering his power is to cool our own jets and not respond. He wants chaos and noise. We have to summon the strength to not contribute to that 
chaos and noise. And Pete tweets, how can you build a tent with people who supported this deeply psychologically disturbed man? So a couple of listeners weighing in on their feelings about President Trump. And here's a question, and let me go to you on this, Lonnie Chen. Lonnie Chen, again, is research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, this is Hillary who wants to know, how are the ballots protected in the situation of a recount? What's the guarantee that all ballots will be recounted? How does that work? Lonnie? Well, re recounts are uh, relatively actually ordinary in the course of, of state law. So different states have different laws regarding how recounts are conducted. In some cases, they're required by state law if the margin falls under a certain number for, for, for the recount to happen. In other cases, candidates can request recounts if the margins are, are within certain um, certain levels. In terms of ballot protection, each state has its own requirements and, and uh, regulations regarding how those ballots are protected. And in the same way that the secretaries of state and county clerks across the country have really done a phenomenal job during this election, ensuring the proper administration of the election, I fully expect the states to take whatever means are necessary to protect those ballots. Now, in some cases, Pennsylvania is a good example of this. In Pennsylvania, they've actually gone the extra mile of, of segregating ballots that may be questioned for some reason to ensure that that count is available easily and readily, and those ballots are available for examination by legal representatives of both political parties in the event that legal activity continues in that vein. So I actually think that the ballot security issue, the administration of the election, are things that this year have been handled beautifully. And I think a lot of credit ought to go to Democrats and Republicans across the country who are administering these elections uh, really under under really high pressure situations, but extremely well so far. But in the meantime, we have a president who says uh, it's OK the way the ballots are being counted in Arizona, but not in Pennsylvania or also has gone on record as saying Democrats in charge uh, make a difference uh, to the way things are going against him when you have Republicans in charge in Georgia and you also have Republicans in charge in Arizona. It's uh, kind of an imbalancing and uh, in many ways uh, a very aggravating sense of uh, of what's fair, at least the way the president sees things. Um, here's a comment from Marilee, and I'm going to go to you on this, Amanda Renteria. She says, Brian Kemp is also responsible, that's governor of Georgia, for suppressing hundreds of thousands of voters in 2018. I'm thankful for Stacey Abrams, who should be governor, continuing the fight to protect the vote. And as I said earlier, Stacey Abrams really deserves a great deal of credit from not only the Democratic Party, but uh, also for what she's been able to essentially ensure in Georgia, wouldn't you say, Amanda? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the stories out of this is that you can't do it in a year. Stacey Abrams has been working on this for six years. Um, if Arizona turns, it's because of the work that Latino groups immigrant groups have been doing for 10 years um, since the passage of SB 1070, one of the most anti-immigration laws in the country. And we have to remember that, that true empowerment, people being engaged civically, does require a committed, dedicated effort over time so that people begin to believe in the institution of voting and in the, and the institutions of this country. I think that hopeful message out of this and that we don't stop rebuilding that trust with our institutions is going to be incredibly important, especially because of what is Trump, Trump is doing right now to really bring that down. And Todd Zwillick, uh, heard old timer uh, Republican lawyer uh, this morning, Ben Ginsburg, opining that these lawsuits, and there are a flurry of them, and the president, certainly even before he was president, was known for his uh, promiscuity when it comes to litigation, uh, that they're not gonna, likely to go anywhere, that they don't have much merit. Would you agree with that assumption? 
I'm not a lawyer, but one thing I do know from watching Ginsburg and talking to a lot of people is that it's one thing to step to a microphone and allege broad kind of amorphous allegations of fraud, malfeasance, theft, uh, and the rest of it. That stuff doesn't fly in court. In court, in an election court, you need specific claims about specific ballots in specific places and specific law breaking. And if you don't have that, you don't have a case. So um, the, the president's uh, diatribe sort of low-key diatribe last night from the White House undermining the election and alleging broad sort of fog of fraud uh, is not a legal strategy that works once you're in front of a judge. Well, we will wait and see how everything is delivered in the votes. I want to thank Todd Zwillick uh, from Vice News and Amanda Renteria, who is former national Pol political director for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016, and Lonnie Chen, former policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Uh, listener writes, I see Trump carry Texas, Florida, almost all the southern states, as well as much of the Midwest, and it wasn't enough. Is this the end of the Republican southern strategy? We'll leave it on that note. Let me thank not only our guests, but thank you, our listeners, and remind you that Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Senior editor is Dan Zoll, and our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.